0: Hi, I'm Stephen Webb, host of Touring Heaven, your tour guide and traveling companion. And I'd like to invite you to come with me on a tour of heaven. We're coming up for our last journey in this introductory series of Touring Heaven. To make it special, we're going on a tour in our etheric bodies to the heavenly level of Sri Lanka to the high mountainous country in the lush green island off the southeast coast of India for an experience that will likely expand our narrow room of awareness. For my part, I've been asked to take a bit more responsibility for the tour, and I'll do my best to set the context for our visit. Instead of offering some background about the Master and the retreat before we leave, we're going to cover it when we get there. As we prepare, I'd like to briefly introduce you to a major facet of God's creation on Earth that we haven't really touched on yet. You're somewhat familiar with the angelic kingdom, or state of God's consciousness as angelic life, and how the great hierarchies of archangels and angels serve us by radiating God's divine qualities to us when we pray for them to intercede in our world. And you're becoming more familiar with the estate of God's sons and daughters represented by the ascended masters in heaven. We are apprentices and inheritors of this estate, of the Son of God, which designs and governs the material universes. The third estate we haven't heard much about is the elemental kingdom, or the builders of universes, solar systems, and us. In our physical bodies we can't see elementals, such as gnomes, who are nature's builders on our planet. They are the artists, small and large, who blend organic and inorganic elements of the periodic table to make the flowers, grasses, trees, and all the useful and beautiful natural things on our planet. Look at the wood grain in a piece of fine furniture or trim and ask yourself if it formed inside a tree that magnificently as a random event with no thought for beauty. God the artist and gardener directs it all. There are the sylphs who move the elements of the air we breathe into our lungs and also experience as global climate circulation and local weather. There are the fiery salamanders who exist at the core of the planet and are at the center of every use of fire, heat and warmth on the surface of the planet and in our own bodies. Then there are the undines who are the elemental embodiment of water also in our physical bodies in the oceans, the rain, dew, even humidity. They all work together on God's designs in an interwoven blend of coordinated elemental teamwork that we take for granted as Mother Nature. We're going to meet a few of them near the retreat on our tour, coming up. Okay, our blue and white escort angels are spiraling in right now. If you're ready for yet another new experience in heaven, hold on to your angels' arms and let's go. Are you ready? We're up and away, up through the dream realm of our metal body and on at the speed of thought into what is actually daytime or afternoon high over the Indian Ocean. That green pendant shaped island down there near the coast of India is where we're heading. In the physical it's called Sri Lanka and the main cities are around the coasts, but in the etheric we're going to the mountains in the center to a retreat known as the Temple of Comfort. I'll tell you more about the Master we'll meet when we get there. As we circle over these mountains running north-south on this beautiful island, we can see snow around the summits, and lower down the slopes are covered in forest. What's really interesting about this particular area of high country is that the physical level is so pure it isn't that far below the vibration of the etheric. There are no physical towns in this area to contaminate Mother Nature. We're spiraling around this particular mountain lower down now and we can see a kind of blending overlay of the etheric and quite pure physical. This is what our world will feel like in the future when the physical vibration approaches the heavenly. At first it'll appear in patches like this. We can see the temporal comfort now in pink and white light on the gentle slope of the mountain, and simultaneously occupying the same space as the temple is a smaller but actual physical home with a wide veranda overlooking a tea plantation. We know there are holy people in and around the Temple of Comfort in the etheric, but there also must be holy people living in and around the physical home, and that this pure presence has been ongoing quietly here for centuries. I've asked our blue escort angels to bring us into a clearing in the forest some distance from the Etheric Temple. I'm hoping we'll be invited inside there in a little while. That's the open area we want. And here we are, on our feet, well beyond the grounds of the temple. At this elevation, the air is just a little bit cool. We thank our angels for their care as soon as we land. And a short walk from here, there's a stream in the forest, and that's where we'll go. To contemplate something new and holy. A pink and white glow of light is visible through the trees. Those lights are bands of angels from the nearby retreat, who consecrate and purify the etheric and physical land every day. As we approach, the angels smile and bow, and we can see the sparkling water of this little stream they have blessed is crystal clear. The rounded rocks along the stream are sun-warmed and big enough to comfortably sit on. We can feel the rays of the sun on our face and the angelic purity radiating from the gurgling water. Now the place where we saw the angels blend into the forest now reveals a different kind of company. Elementals emerging between the trees, curious to see the apprentice sons and daughters of God. There are gnomes ranging from three feet to ten feet high, in rustic clothes, fairies and elves of various sizes. To them, this is a big occasion to see us and knowing we can see them. To us, it's a confirmation of the stories told by people in our world who could see across the line from the purest physical and into the etheric world. And if you look up between the branches of the trees, there are sylphs, air elementals, making a giant V-shape, see, way up high out of cirrus clouds. They think us being here is some kind of victory. A couple of things you should know about our new friends around us and in the stream. Unlike us, elementals don't come back into another life after passing. For them, one etheric life is it. For them, we are amazing beings, sons and daughters of God with great promise learning about immortality for the first time, apprentice heirs to the universe. You can see their attention on us is a joyful, complete concentration, total devotion to service, Mother Nature for our needs. It's like they're waiting to say, tell me what you want made in nature and I'll do it. So why this expansion of understanding to consider the various nature elementals? Because you're expanding your narrow room of awareness as you should. To expand even further, let's consider the great master we're here to visit. One of the things you should know about our ascended elder brothers and sisters is that the higher they gravitate in service to God, from the planetary scale to the cosmic, the more humble they become. They've let go of the name and personality that we think makes us identifiable in our world. The masters identify with the office they fill. If their office is to be a bricklayer, then they are so masterful in that service that we know them as Bricklayer. And their former name isn't relevant because they've transcended that old identity. Their service is what they want to be known by. We don't actually know the former name of the master we've come to meet, only the name of his office. That office integrates and unifies the service to God of the masters we've been visiting. Those masters... El Moria, Lanto, Paul of Venetian, Serapis Bay, Hilarion, Nada, and Saint Germain are described in the ancient Indian or Sanskrit language as chohans or lords because of their dedicated service and mastery. The other masters we've met, Confucius, Jesus the Christ, Gautama Buddha, and Kuan Yin, also hold holy offices as sons and daughters of God. Heaven is very organized, and we do well when we begin to imitate these standards of mastery. What high office would integrate the activities of these great masters, and also all of the service of the elemental beings of nature? What common factor links them all? It is life. When you were born into our world, the very first thing you did was breathe. Without breath, you wouldn't make a sound or have a life to begin. When we breathe, the air we take into our lungs contains oxygen. And at the intersection of science and spirituality, this is what we'll remember about the master we've come to visit. Air containing oxygen is a blanket wrapped around our planet. It interpenetrates everything living. It's in our blood, our lungs, in the atoms of water and rain, in the oceans and in this stream in front of us. We need this free air. The masters breathe it and the elemental beings breathe it. We are interconnected by the oxygen in us and around us. Maintaining this unifying element in the correct proportion is an essential service that makes life on earth possible. So we think of oxygen as a physical element, but its molecular design is spiritual, reflecting God's will to live in form. You don't see air, water, or life on the physical levels of the moon. Or Mercury, Venus, Mars, or Jupiter. God created air and water containing oxygen as part of a material platform designed to express divinity in form on this planet at all levels. Remember I mentioned that all of the masters we've met have auras or spheres of awareness larger than planet Earth. Soon we're going to meet the master of the Temple of Comfort, whose aura is both spiritual awareness at the planetary level and of the invisible blanket of air that all life takes oxygen from, on land, in the sky, and in water. Take a moment to imagine that we're going to meet a Master who is aware of the breathing and heartbeat of every living person and thing on earth, all at once. The funny thing is that it's not that unheard of. You've heard the term from the New Testament in the Bible, the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all as one. Buddhism and Hinduism have their equivalents under different names. While the father aspect is the formless, creative impetus beyond our knowing, and the son, the second person of the Trinity, is associated with its best-known exemplar, Jesus the Christ, who is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? Could that really be a divine person? In the Hindu tradition, the name or title of the third person of the Trinity is given as Shiva, But in Christianity, there's no personage representing the Holy Spirit. It's just an undefined office. And no one talks much about what the office of the Holy Spirit does. But we mention it as part of the Trinity anyway, without wondering why we don't know. Jesus gave us a hint when he described the Holy Spirit as the Comforter, who could be active in all places simultaneously, when Jesus was no longer physically with the disciples. We'd like to know more consider the humility of a divine being who has a title for a name and whose sacred labor is the comforter for pure love of us the masters themselves refer to this being only as the maha chauhan or great lord in ancient indian sanskrit christians refer to this unknown being as the holy spirit how do we explain the nature of one whose presence enfolds the planet and yet is so humble as to be unknown to us by name. To touch on the nature of the unknown one, there's really only one time and place in the historical record where a tangible legacy was made, showing he was once as human as us. Right at the dawn of ancient Greek civilization, when things weren't so civilized, greed, deceit, and war between men was what defined history. Somewhere around 800 to 900 BC, there was a blind Greek poet named Homer, who had turned himself to the personal side of the tragic errors of his time. Homer, though physically blind, realized that drama, as the retelling of the motives and outcomes of those who set these wars in motion, was a powerful warning for those who in future centuries would recognize greed, deceit, and violence in themselves, and restrain from initiating war. Homer's great classic, The Iliad, describes in poetic ballad form the context, cause, and setting of the last year of the Trojan War between rival Greek kingdoms. The blindness of the Greek leaders on both sides to their lust, possessiveness, pride, and anger made them captive and helpless to change course during the war. The consequence of destruction, waste, and tragedy was a warning worth telling in a poetic form so powerful as to still resonate in movies and books in our time, almost 3,000 years later. The poet Homer couldn't change that past history, but he cared enough that humanity might avoid the same errors in judgment in future history that he put his great attainment into this literary form at a time when literacy was probably held by less than 1% of the ancient world. How could he have become one of the greatest moral storytellers of all time when few around him could write or read, and he was blind. The answer is in the Akashic records of prior civilizations and has not been revealed. Likewise, Homer's other classic, The Odyssey, describes the wayward path home around the Mediterranean for a shipload of Greek warriors returning from the Trojan War. The Odyssey, as early literature, was remarkable as a journey story of survival, endurance, and faith. Its life-threatening progression through natural and supernatural hazards represented the overcoming of personal records of lust, possessiveness, pride, and anger, the source of the tragedies of war. Again, Homer cared for his people enough to devote his life to showing there were ways to overcome adversity and not to be victims of the darker impulses of oneself or others. We know of no other lifetimes of the Mahachohan where he was remembered by any name. In his final physical lifetime, after his life as Homer, he lived as a simple shepherd somewhere in rural ancient India. There he took advantage of his outdoor life of peace and quiet to focus on levels of attainment that went far beyond his mastery in literature. So where did the unknown one come from? It might not surprise you to know that he was, like the other masters we've met, there on etheric Venus, and made the vow with the 144,000 volunteers who came here with Sunat Kamara to intercede in Earth's darkest and lowest period. All of them knew Earth was, by cosmic law, no longer a viable platform for God's creation. Whether they fully understood what they were getting into, they came anyway. And some of them earned their way out of our physical level and into higher service but never really leaving us. The relationship between the soul of the Maha Chauhan and the Ancient of Days was so close that the great attainment of the simple shepherd in India grew into a perpetual meditative focus on all of the personal and impersonal aspects of God. Centuries before Jesus' life in Galilee, the soul of the Maha in willing constancy of concentration, received the light coming from the source of creation through the Ancient of Days. That flow of life-giving light found a suitable receptacle in the shepherd to disseminate that light as purity, encouragement, and comfort to millions. No one else knew. The Maha Chauhan gained his mastery by consecrating his four lower bodies as a chalice for the consciousness of the Holy Spirit, as a step-down transformer for the light of God coming through Sanat Kamara, the Ancient of Days. The example of the quiet service of the Maha is typical of the determination of a great brotherhood of saints to save the people and the planet, when by law it should have been all over. The Maha role as the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, has been and is the integrator of all of the efforts of the Brotherhood of the Saints over millennia, and the best is yet to come. You might also be interested to know that there have been previous office holders in the role of the Holy Spirit before the Maha Long before the rebellion and fall of the Archangel Lucifer reached our galaxy, Earth was the successful host platform for three evolutions of God's sons and daughters. Each evolution was pure and free from torment and were able to master their divine plan of physical and spiritual tests over a period of 14,000 years or fourteen lifetimes of less than a thousand years each. This was about ten times our limited allotment of years. Each evolution had their own representative of the Holy Spirit who graduated into cosmic service with their respective evolutions or root races. The divine plan of the fourth root race was interrupted and subverted by the arrival of the fallen angels in the physical octave around two million years ago. The decline was a long torment for them, an unending cycle of miserable lives that would have ended in dissolution if Sanat Kamara had not volunteered to rescue them and the platform of earth. The fifth and sixth root races arriving later have also been subverted. The incoming seventh root race, whose first lives will be in South America, are also in jeopardy. But wait, why have we had to endure this evil? Why does God allow evil to go on for so long on our level? The answer is buried in the question. Why do we, who have the fire of God in us, allow evil to go on for so long on our level? If you knew you had the authority to command Archangel Michael to seal you and yours in the whole armor of God every day, and you somehow forgot to command him every day, who would be to blame? Ignorance is no excuse. The long climb back up from subhuman levels of no civilization is still underway, and you, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, have a particular role in the rescue, beginning with yourself. The Mahachohan, as the person holding the office of the Holy Spirit, is going to join us here by the stream in a few minutes, so let's summarize what we've covered. We understand a humble person long ago qualified himself by God's standards of love for his people to hold this holy office. Jesus qualified himself by God's standards to hold the office of the Son of God through constancy of communion with God, stretching back to initiations past tens of thousands of years ago. The same principle applies to each of the masters we've met, who hold the office of certain rays or aspects of God's divine qualities. The Mahachohan is the master who integrates and coordinates them a leader of leaders who are all brothers and sisters of God. The spiritual aura of the Mahachohan is larger than earth, interpenetrating the subatomic space and energy of all material substance on and in the earth. His spherical presence is in the form of a planetary blanket of oxygenated air and water, giving life to elementals and people. He is with you in your first breath and your last. Simultaneously, he wears the form of a modest holy man who'll sit down on these warm rocks with us soon. Can we wrap our heads around planetary awareness and the appearance of a man at the same time? Will our waking mind remember this in the morning? Probably not. But thank God our elder brothers and sisters have stayed the course and by their service have created auras of sensitivity much larger than the earth. They are constant, and they care about us and won't leave us. Our role is to work lovingly with them and speak to them with respect in prayer, to let them know our needs and that of the planet. We are brothers and sisters in heaven and earth, all working in coordination to save a planet that long ago was sabotaged by fallen ones who served themselves and not God's own. Now, I know you've gotten comfortable on these nice warm rocks, and it is pretty amazing sitting here by the stream with our elemental friends. But I'd like to invite you to rise now, as our host is here. Please rise. It is my honor to introduce you to the Ascended Master, the Maha Chohan. Without fanfare or any notice, the Maha Chohan just appears, pausing on the grassy path by the stream. He smiles as if he already knows us and then bows to the Christ in us. He's slender with an upright bearing, somewhere in his thirties as we would think, handsome, graceful, dressed in a plain white robe and turban, and has amazingly penetrating brown eyes. His expression is firm, disciplined, and comforting at the same time, and he greets us as if we're family and informally gestures for us to take our seats again on the rocks, as he does. And then he begins, confident in us and straight to the point. You have been invited here for a holy purpose. You have prepared. I would speak to you of the selflessness of Jesus the Christ, and that selflessness as an office not unique unto our Lord. This office is offered unto you as a shared garment, which you are worthy to wear. You then must put on his garment. Try it on. It will fit. It will go well with thee. Take that garment of the law and the teaching and the essence of his love, and let it be the transforming miracle of your life. Let it be for the fulfillment of the promise of the coming of the Lord and the words of Jesus himself. I will not leave you comfortless. The Spirit descends to fulfill that vow, and you, as you come into the midst of the blessed children of God, fulfill the vow as a carrier of comfort's flame. And so this is the flame that I give you, the flame of selflessness to keep. When you have the flame of selflessness, what are you? You are the purity and perfection Of the Christ in manifestation within the temple of being, without obstacle, without the miring aspects of the human consciousness. And those who come to see you as disciple or as teacher will look upon you and see standing there before you the image of the Christed One most needed in that hour. For the flame of selflessness, which is without personality of the lower self, is the image of the Christ that applies best to the moment of its consecration. And therefore to one you will appear in this manner, to another in a different manner, and people will begin to remark on how different you look in the many aspects of the extension of your service. And you will find that as the disciples and apostles spoke with the flame of the Holy Spirit, and all understood the teaching in their own language, people will see you after the image of their own Christ self. This is truly the flame of love reflected in love and therefore if you would be the flame of the spirit being all things to all people as god is then the spirit of selflessness is the flame you must become and you know how strong the individual is who has the flame of selflessness what an identity what a powerful individuality this is not someone who's disappearing behind the curtain as the anonymous one Nay, the full power of the Almighty One is upon him or her, the individualization of the God-flame. That soul is the one who will make their mark on the age. That soul is the one with whom mankind will identify, according to their need, as the complement and the comfort to their life. Paradoxically, then, the flame of selflessness is the highest manifestation of individuality, you yourself would be astounded to know how much power and how much wisdom and how much love can be contained in the life of the individual who has become the selfless one. On any day of any year, you may then descend with Jesus into the astral plane, the realm of the temporarily lost, for the rescue. Will you remember my words? Will you remember especially the young, the young and the old alike, who have passed from the screen of life and who are not able to free themselves from that outer darkness because of their experiences with drugs. Go and minister to them. Go with Michael the archangel. Go with Gabriel. Go with Jesus the Christ. Go in the garment of the Holy Spirit and fear not to descend where the demons and the fallen ones lurk, for they fear the coming of the son or daughter of God. They fear your footsteps as you descend to bring the blinding light of Christos. As the fallen ones are blinded by the presence of God which you bear, so then you will rescue the souls. You will take them into your arms. You will draw them into the love of God. You will extend the comfort of my heart and you will say to them, Come with me, I am your brother your sister on the path. And so you see, the astral plane is a plane of matter, a plane where you ought to take dominion, a plane where we cannot enter unless we are called. And when you call us to enter those planes, our angels run on the rescue mission. You see, those who are caught there are so caught that they no longer have the awareness to pray to make the call. They are in semi-states of awareness, as though in a coma, and they require the ministration of the angelic hosts. We will never take them against their will, precious ones, and there are many who fight against their deliverers. But do you know, you can make the call to their very souls so that they will respond to the angels of deliverance. And when you feel the resistance of souls to leave that which is the familiar. When you feel that resistance, you can call for the blue lightning of the cosmic angels to shatter the density, to break the spell of death, to break the law of mortality, to release them into the sanity of the Christ mind. And sometimes it takes great perseverance and great diligence to convince the soul to reach out and accept the hand of the angel. But you see, you may call for these souls to be cut free from all that has been imposed upon them as the philosophy and the doom of the fallen ones. And therefore, there is hope. There is hope this night in the greatest depths of darkness. I am the Mahachohan. I am concerned with life and the continuity of life, with initiation and its continuity. I am concerned that you keep the flame of life on behalf of all evolutions. Will you keep that flame with me? We respond, I will. And then the master asks us to accompany him along the grassy path through groves of tall trees and fragrant gardens to his retreat. He says as we walk, Would you come with me now? into the presence of that which must be shown and felt as your own. There's no turning back. We are here and we are committed to learning. The retreat not far off is a white mansion on the gentle slopes of a hill overlooking a clear lake with views of distant green mountains and the high forests of the island's center. Reaching the retreat, we ascend a series of marble stairs and feel the pulsing presence of the flame of the Holy Spirit even as we enter the luminous white circular foyer. The Mahachohan smiles as he notices us, pausing to take a breath in the foyer and then gestures for us to follow him. We enter a flame room through beautiful white double doors and stand still in awe. On the walls, portraits of the seven masters, El Moria, Lanto, Paul of Venetian, Serapis Bay, Hilarion, Nada. And St. Germain radiate light through and beyond the retreat like bright needle rays. At the center of the dazzling arrays of light is the flame of the Holy Spirit in a wide chalice, brilliant white. And above and around the flame itself, a steady flow of angelic forms pass through its radiance and out through the walls of the retreat. The Mahachohan explains that these angels cross the planet to infuse nature and mankind with the life-giving essence of the Holy Spirit. They carry this essence in their light bodies, interpenetrating all substance and using the element oxygen in various molecular structures as the vehicle of nature's vitality, so that elementals and the sons and daughters of God can continue their service. And he adds that we, of course, take our ability to breathe on this planet for granted. A few minutes later, the Maha ushers us into another flame room, and again we stand in silence and amazement. We feel the difference in the flame, but can't quite explain it. This flame is also white, appearing out of a crystal chalice bordered by crystal doves, but this flame is tinged with pink. At the base of the white-pink flame fountain, the color is gold, The Mahachohan standing right behind us gestures up at the procession of white-pink angels passing through this radiance in a constant stream. The Master explains their sacred work and our role in it as the Good Samaritan. Our angels carry the emanations of the comfort flame throughout the earth to the hearts of all who yearn for comfort and purity from the Father-Mother God. As you would descend with Jesus into the astral plane, for the rescue of those no longer in embodiment and trapped there, so the spirit of selflessness in you can pray for the living, for those whom you know not, who are also trapped in despair. To press on with life, they need comfort and the reassurance of purity. Our angels may infuse them with comfort to dissolve that despair, but we cannot intercede unless we are called by someone like you, in prayer. That is the spirit of selflessness, to know you have the power of the Good Samaritan on any day in any year to speak for them, in love, so that those on the other side of the world in need, or in your own town, may receive the angels of comfort, and hope will be sustained. It is the law that someone offer the prayer even for the unknown, each day. Will you keep that flame with me? I am in the flame of the mother and the father, and I am in the heart of every son and daughter of God. The Mahachohan closes his eyes, and we stand with him in meditation on the stream of white-pink angels shooting out across the planet. Remembering the unknown Holy Shepherd in India long ago, magnetizing comfort and purity for millions he didn't know. It's plain that the equivalent office to be the Good Samaritan, the Comforter, has just been offered to us. What else are we doing for the rest of this life? Outside on the marble stairs a few minutes later, we look up to see our blue-white escort angels overhead. The Maha Chohan, whom we know only by his title and his example, leads us out through the gardens to the lawns and pauses to say something. As he's expecting us to return in the near future, there's no goodbye. Instead, he expresses a sense of brotherliness and good humor and says, Good evening, chosen of the light. Breathe. And then we're up and away, up above the green mountains and forests of heavenly Sri Lanka and heading back to our sleeping bodies at home. Will we remember anything we've learned on this tour or any of the others when our waking mind is made by God to deal only with the challenges of the day at hand? The etheric part of us, made by God for communion with heaven, the part with the long soul memory and the blueprint of what's ahead, will let us know in good time and in a non-verbal way the important things we've learned. What we'll continue to learn on future visits will assure us that heaven and earth are one and that God in us is in charge of the lower part as well as the heights. We've taken 12 tours of heaven in this introductory series. Don't wait for the next series to get on with the tours and go with the escort angels to the next level of your lessons. And if you see me there, come and say hi. For your waking mind, as always, I'd recommend our reference book, The Masters and Their Retreats, which you can find, browse, and buy if you want on AscendedMasterSpiritualRetreats.com. And there's another book there you might also be interested in called Odyssey of Your Soul. This book looks deeply into the tests of overcoming that the Mahachohan, almost 3,000 years ago, as the poet Homer, offered to a mostly illiterate world as The Odyssey about the journey home. We're all in this journey home together in the spirit of selflessness until I see you again on tour with lots more to learn. Always victory.